Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Fletcher, who is Development Director at Hyde, which is a major UK housing association managing about 50,000 homes. And she's also the chair of Swatham Prior Community Land Trust, which you may have seen in the press recently as they created the UK's first green district heating system. Is that correct, Emma? Yeah, that's correct. Great. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So what we're going to talk about today is a housing policy paper that we wrote, which is being published, hopefully, in the week that this is <laughs> that this is published. And the origin of the paper was a lunch hosted by the Whitehall Group, which is part of the Cambridge University Land Society, which both Emma and I are heavily involved with. And it was in partnership with the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. And there was a discussion around housing policy and some key points that both Emma and I felt really strongly about. The first was that we lacked a clear, realistic vision for the housing market in the UK. And the second was that we desperately need to put and keep in place impactful, sometimes maybe politically challenging policies that align with that vision and also that align with other policies. So after the discussion where both Emma and I had kind of voiced our opinions, we were asked to write a paper about our vision and what we would propose uh, happens. And really, ultimately, our view was that without a clear vision, there is no way that you can achieve success in the housing market. There's no way that you can move away from constant housing crises. But, and you know, we've seen that it's possible to, in other areas, create a clear vision that everybody can work towards and to get wide-ranging political and public support. And Net Zero is a great example of this. But basically, for many years, housing policy has been quite short-term focused and often quite unrealistic. So being more realistic, having more realistic policies in place would give us a better chance of achieving positive outcomes in the housing market, which we really haven't managed this for many years currently. For example, you know, we're not really realistically accepting the opportunity costs. Everyone talks about intergenerational inequality, but you can't really achieve that without shifting resources from older to younger generations. So we tried to, with this paper, establish a clear, realistic vision for the housing market across all the different tenures. And then talk about the kind of housing policies that we need to achieve that, moving away from the short-termist, kind of badly aligned policies that we've seen in recent years. So in this podcast, I thought we could share some of our thoughts. What we'll do is I will set the scene and talk a bit about the problem. And then Emma, uh, if you could talk about our suggestions for how to solve them with the solutions, head up the solutions. Hopefully that works. So Perfect. wonderful. So the first big problem is that. I mentioned it earlier that for short-termism, basically, for many years, housing policies have focused on outcomes that are deliverable through political terms. But actually, things are getting worse under this kind of short-termist regime, not better. And it's just not sustainable. Policies are not achieving outcomes that solve the problems of our lifetimes. So 87 to 90 years for babies who were born in 2020. They're not solving the problems for those babies, let alone future generations. The second big problem is misalignment. Housing policy so frequently does not align with other important policies. And it also seems to change every five minutes. We've had, let's just say, high turbulence in the housing department, basically. And in this paper, we highlight the example of the misalignment between immigration and housing policies. For example, 
2021, we built about 230,000 net new homes against a new homes target of about 300,000, alongside net immigration of 504,000 people. And ongoing demographic shifts like shrinking households and aging population, which that's what the housing targets are based on. So basically, in combination with all of the population growth that we have, we are so far away from being able to actually house the people that are both new households and also new people coming into the country. It just doesn't take a genius to work out that the shortage is going to get worse without quite radical change in one of those departments. Another big problem is politicization. So we have these narratives like we need to build more homes to solve the housing crisis. And maybe another narrative that is very popular is private landlords are bad and social housing is good. And this kind of underlies policies, but it's too simplistic and it misses almost all of the subtleties. So really what we sought to do is to kind of reframe the problem across 10 years, outline a realistic vision, like I mentioned, as a whole and by tenure, and then suggest some practical policies to move towards that. The trouble, of course, is that genuinely problem-solving policies are often very unpalatable. So what needs to be done is in the world of algorithms, there's this concept called relaxing constraints. And it's a technique that's used to tackle really complicated problems. So you relax the constraints and then solve a more simple problem because the solution to that relaxed problem provides useful information for solving the more complex problem. That's kind of what we've done with the paper is we've relaxed the real life constraint of vested interest, which is one of the things that we think is most damaging (laughs) to housing policy. The housing crisis is often simplified to just being a supply shortage. The policies seek to grow the new supply of homes from planning reforms to housing targets. And in our report, we highlight that for 98% of housing that we will be using in five years' time already exists, and 80% of what we'll be using in 2050 already exists. So sure, the lack of new volume is a problem, but it is just one part of the set of problems. And we actually think there's three really important structural problems. So yeah, the first one is volume and as a result, affordability. There aren't enough homes to meet demand. So prices and rents are increasing beyond what is affordable. Economic and social problems, including vast inequalities of opportunity, are the result. For example, when we wrote the report, the average home was costing 9.4 times average household disposable incomes. Rent for a single person was about 35% of average incomes. And even those who are fortunate enough to be able to rent or own their own home are affected. There's a group of silent suffering people who are increasingly recognized through non-traditional data sets, such as food bank use, which was up 52% in the six months to September 2022, compared with the previous year. And the impact of the affordability and volume problem is disproportionately felt by younger and poorer people. Interestingly, in 2021, 42% of 20 to 34 year olds lived with their parents, compared with 35% in 1997. In 2020, over a million people were waiting for social homes. And Crisis estimates that more than 282,000 people are homeless in England. The flip side of the affordability crisis, of course, is massive wealth gains for homeowners. 36% of homes in England and Wales are owned outright, so no mortgages. And their owners benefit from security of tenure, they benefit from capital growth, and that is the cause of the reduced affordability of housing. Typically, that 36% are older, wealthier, and they're more politically influential with a vested interest in keeping supply tight. And for this reason, the problem is highly, highly political. The second big structural problem is distribution. 
it's not just a question of there not being enough homes. There are homes in the wrong places, at the wrong sizes or wrong prices, or they're just not being used efficiently. For example, in August 2022, average new build homes were priced 18% higher than the average UK house price. Further, there are in fact enough bedrooms to house our current population. 69.2%, so that's 17.2 million of households in England and Wales have more bedrooms than required. And more than 3.6 million homes across the country owned by over 65s have at least two spare bedrooms. Again, the impact of this is disproportionately felt by younger people, basically my generation and below, who are really suffering as a result of poor distribution. Third big problem is quality, including safety and energy efficiency, which is a topic very close to my heart and something I'm focusing on day to day. I mean, it's a huge problem. It may come as a surprise that in a developed country, such as England, so many properties are considered non-decent. 23% of private rental sector homes lived in by typically younger and poorer people are classed as non-decent. 12% of those have category one hazards, which means there are risks of death presented in the property. Clearly, this is a huge problem in terms of health, well-being and intergenerational inequality. The second aspect of the problem around quality is energy efficiency. The UK has the oldest and leakiest housing in Europe. And this is a huge problem for the environment and for achieving net zero because 14 to 18%, depending on which source you look at, of UK greenhouse gases come from homes. Increasing numbers of people are falling into fuel poverty as a result of poor energy performance. In 2019 to 2020, 19.2% of the population were in fuel poverty, which means they're spending more than 10% of their income on fuel. And that increased to 55.8% in 2023, despite government intervention via the energy price guarantees, which at the time we wrote this paper had cost already 18 billion. The housing quality problem in terms of standards, in terms of safety and energy performance is really pressing. So the consequences of what we do or what we fail to do are really long term. I mentioned earlier that 98% of the homes that will exist in five years' time are already there, and 80% of those in 2050. That, hopefully, neatly-ish, <laughs> summarizes the problems. And now I'm going to hand over to you, Emma. Can you share how we propose to start solving these problems, our policy ideas across 10 years? Yes, certainly. So the real hypothesis underlying this paper and the real driver was that actually solving the housing crisis requires quite a big open debate, a realistically widely accepted data-driven vision, which is ultimately practical and could be implemented. And in the words of Darren Baxter from the Joseph Browntree Foundation, the government must get the details right for reform to be truly effective. And that's exactly where we've come from. Imagine a world with no politics, where actually we can look at all the different types of housing tenure and think, right, what is best for this type of tenure, rather than a box ticking exercise that tends to, on the whole, focus on new build to be the solution to all of our problems. So we decided that we'd look at policies first that looked at all 10 years. What could we actually do? And the one thing that really caused us grief and concern was the lack of consistency over all the different generations of governments and the many, many housing ministers we've had. So for us, we totally believe that all housing policies from now on should actually align with the net zero targets of 2050. That is a line in the sand moment that no government, no change in minister could deviate away from and actually is a suitable time frame for everybody to start thinking we've got to get our own house quite literally in order in order to actually get to net zero. 
So in terms of actually looking at what we need to do, we also need to think about aligning our targets with things like immigration policy. And we need to also look at the majority of the housing that we've got at the moment, which means that we have to focus on our existing homes far more effectively rather than just on the new home sector. The policy should also be thinking about how we go and incentivise people to actually make those improvements to their homes at a period in time where household budgets are incredibly challenged and also at the same time bills are going up and up and up as we see with the electricity prices. We also think that due to our ageing population, as Anna has stated before, that we should really consider incentivising downsizing in terms of making sure that we've actually got people in the right type of home for their right age and stage of life. And we also need to think about the rapid reuse of empty homes. There are so many empty homes around the country and they could be put to much better use uh, to home people that really do need a decent house. So then we looked at owner-occupied and we thought, well, actually, what can we look at the owner-occupied sector and how can we make some material changes to the way we currently operate? And for us, it's all about energy-saving materials, about refurbishment works. And actually, could we see a point where we remove VAT for all that building work that's actually stimulating the growth in our economies and actually improving existing housing stock? We also considered waiving stamp duty land tax for downsizers to try and encourage people to think about actually moving to homes that suit their needs. And also, could we start thinking about aligning council tax, maybe not at the moment, but with energy performance certificates, maybe around 2030, so that actually that people are encouraged both to invest in their property, reduce their bills, but at the same time, they get a benefit of a reduction in council tax. And then also, our marketplace for selling homes is so challenged. And for many people, buying and selling a house is a really big, laborious and slow process. So is there anything we can do to encourage selling? to actually either improve their homes before they sell them, but actually show to people buying them the realistic price it's going to be in order that somebody invests in that property once they've bought it to bring it to net zero. For the private rental sector, we have a number of recommendations. It's a really key sector that really gets often overlooked. But where we really think we can see some impact is to incentivise longer leases, to enable people to put down roots, to curate community around them and feel stable in their environment. So there's a number of key points with mortgage lenders and tax breaks for property owners to actually think about having a long-term tenant who will look after their property and actually invest in the area. We also think that there should be an extended notice period for at least three months if property owners are going to sell their home. There's a decreasing amount of private rental stock on the market and therefore people will there have more time to try and find a suitable property should their landlord decide to sell. We also think we should incentivise energy performance upgrades for landlords and also encourage more professional investment into the market with players who do have the capital behind them to actually improve the housing stock. For socially rental homes, for those who are probably the most vulnerable in our communities around the country, we do think that we need to maximise the efficiency of the maintenance of homes, often managed by housing associations and councils. This will see a greater response time to customers and actually ensure that properties are maintained and looked after to the correct standard. There's also ideas like the adoption of new technology and incentives uh, for people to adapt that, but also looking at where we should be investing into Senko and 
primary schools to really help improve urban and increasingly the rural areas of our communities where there's deprivation and education has to be the key to that success. But also one of the real drivers is the poor people that are on prepayment meters. For customers that are on prepayment meters, they miss out on all the deals and customers should be offered the same advantages that those that are paying by direct debit with a regular meter. For the affordable rented sector, we need a careful review as well of the housing stock, but we need to think about how can we be generating more affordable rented products. And maybe we should be expanding the rural exception site policy to ensure that we get a greater mix of housing. Could we link credit scores to enable customers that are currently renting in affordable rent to show that they're good tenants and they can move into the private rental sector or into a shared ownership product? And we also think, and this is critical, that actually councils publish the data. We need the correct data out there to show the general public and to those in all of the policy making decision processes who are in need out there. Who are those housing people that really need to get the right type of property for them? So councils must, at the moment, they only publish bands A, which is urgent need, and B, which is high priority. But actually, the vast number of people are actually sat in band C, which are those that identified housing need, or band D, which are those are in affordable social housing and home buy who are interested in that. They're not publicly monitored. They're not disclosed. And we know that it's like an iceberg. A and B is just the tip. But those on C and D are huge numbers. And actually, they need to be fed out into society so we can make decent policies around those that are in need. And then for shared ownership, we also think that we need to increase the number of homes that are being offered for people to buy at a lower or discount to the market. And we think that releasing Greenbelt around two miles of train stations is something that council should really consider in order that we move to this net zero economy. We also think that there should be a nationwide acceptance of a shared ownership product purely for the over 55s to assist in downsizing with no barriers to entry. I, if you already own your home, you can actually buy a shared ownership product without being turned away. And then also shared ownership also means shared responsibility. And housing associations could offer equivalent services to their shared ownership customers, utilizing their frameworks and the fantastic sort of discounted products that can be purchased when you're buying in bulk. So we think there's a greater role possibly for housing associations to help shared ownership customers achieve net zero. So that's a bit of a fly through of what our thoughts are. There, and Many of these thoughts have been influenced by discussion with other people as well. There's no perfect fits all solution to this. But we think that with a number of tweaks in different areas targeting specifically different tenures, we could start to see a real turnaround in the provision of the right homes for the right people at the right time and in the yeah. right place. Absolutely, Emma. Yes. So I think one of the things that I found most interesting and I learned the most from when we were writing this paper was your knowledge of all of the different tenures. And quite often when you read about housing in the press, it's really simple. And I know I've kind of got on my high horse about this before. It's, you know, statistics that get published in newspapers are often obscure a lot of the subtleties. But really, there is so much difference between the different tenures. And to the points that you were making towards the end there, like a lot of the times, the most vulnerable people are really suffering at the hands of quite blunt policies. <laughs> so hopefully this paper will go some way to influence future policies so that we can actually 
sort of stand by the goal that gets talked about, which is helping the next generation, averting the housing crisis. And without smart policies and without a clear vision, there's just no way that we can do that. So hopefully we'll be able to help in some capacity. Um, One thing that I wanted to mention at the end was if you do want to get a hold of a copy of the report, I believe it will be on the Cambridge University Land Society website, which is culandsoc.com. And also you can reach out to Emma or I on LinkedIn, probably. We're both there and very active and super happy to share more detail on our thoughts um, policies and on the vision. Anything else have I forgot, Emma? No, I'd like to thank everyone that's inputted into this paper. And this is just the start. But with these interventions, I think we can start cracking the nut. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me to share all that. And thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.